بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسوله الكريم نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد Continuing with our study of the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawi We are now at the end of our study of the hadith Where the messenger said Righteousness is good character And sin is what causes uneasiness within the soul And you hate that other people find out about it Let's have a quick recap The messenger he says in this narration that sin, sin is that which you find uneasiness in your, in your soul concerning. Does that now mean that in order for a Muslim to know what is halal, in order for a Muslim to know what is haram, all he has to do is ask his soul. All he has to do is just feel it. If it feels halal, that means it's halal. If it feels haram, that means it's haram. Is that what it means? No. What does it mean? What does it mean then? What's this statement of the Messenger alayhi salatu indicating towards? Meaning that if the believer, the righteous person, has that feeling inside of himself, that this thing, I feel as though I shouldn't do it, then that is a sign that is an indication that it is haram. Most likely it is haram. And therefore it's a sign for you not to do it. You might not know for definite if it is halal. You might not know for definite if it is haram. But if it is the case that you have this feeling in your heart, this feeling in your soul, that this, there's something dubious about this. I've got a feeling that I shouldn't do this. You're reluctant about it, and that's a sign that you should keep away from it. Keeping away from it is better. But the actual source by which we know what is halal and what is haram for definite is the sharia, the Islamic law, the legislation. That is how we determine by definite as to what is halal and what is haram. Can anybody and everybody feel this sensation? feel this feeling in their heart, in their soul, that when they want to do something, which may be, may be haram, they end up getting a feeling inside of their heart and their soul that, don't do this. Does anybody and everybody feel this? No. It is the one that is a person of bir, a person of righteousness. The messenger said, the other narration to a companion, he knew that this is a righteous person. But as for the person that engages in sin, openly, is persistent in sin. Again and again and again he's sinning. Everybody sins, as the messenger said. All of the sons of Adam, they sin. But the best of sinners are those who repent. The one who is sinning in open, or the one that is consistent and persistent in certain sins, that type of person is going to end up losing that sensation, losing that sensitivity. And so, when it is the case that he's about to embark upon a certain sin, he's not going to get that feeling in his heart. He's not going to get that sensation in his soul that you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't approach that thing. Why? Because, because he's continued in sinning again and again and again, 
and thus that feeling has become desensitized. That feeling towards being apprehensive about sinning has become numbed. When you do something again and again and again, touch something again and again and again, it becomes numbed. When you sin again and again and again and again, in public, in open, or you're sinning against Allah continuously, then the shame, it goes. The shyness from Allah, it goes, it depletes, it becomes weakened. And thus, as a result of that, you lose out on that sensitivity towards feeling shame, feeling uneasiness when you're about to embark upon a certain sin. The next part, which is part number six, Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Abbad, he comments upon the statement of the Messenger alayhi salatu wasalam, when he said, وَإِنْ أَفْتَاكَ النَّاسُ وَأَفْتَوْكَ Even if people give you verdict upon verdict, meaning, sin is what the heart finds uneasiness towards and the soul finds uneasiness towards and the chest has this reluctancy concerning even if people give you verdict upon verdict one after the other so concerning this Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Abbad he said in summary he said that the person who gives you a verdict verdict, verdict concerning a matter which you feel is maybe a sin maybe wrong so you go to somebody and you say to, to, the, to the one that you're asking the verdict from, is this thing halal or is this thing haram? The person says, it's halal. No problem, permissible, you can do it. Even though you've got that verdict from someone who is qualified, it could be a scholar, it could be someone who's qualified to give a verdict. Or it may be someone who's not qualified at all. And he's someone that has given that verdict without knowledge. He's not said it based upon what he knows from the scholars. He said it based upon his own whim. Regardless of whether you got that verdict from someone that said his, who delivered that verdict based upon knowledge or delivered, delivered it based upon ignorance, regardless, if it is the case that the person has said it is halal, but you have that uneasiness in your soul, you have that reluctancy in your chest, in your soul, in your heart, then it is better, it is safer that you don't go ahead with it, even though that you've been given a verdict. This, however, is in those matters where there is no evidence or the evidence isn't clear to you. Those matters that are absolutely clear, then there, shall, then there cannot be any reluctancy in those things. There can't be any reluctancy in saying that bread in general is haram. Allah, Allah has made bread halal to consume, to eat. And there is no ambiguity in that regard. A specific loaf of bread, maybe. Maybe there are certain factors that indicate that some type of haram substance was put in there. But we're talking about the general ruling concerning bread. Bread, if someone was to say, bread, you know, maybe it is haram because I've got this feeling that bread perhaps is haram, then he can't pay any attention to that feeling because it's clear-cut. But as far as those things that might not be clear-cut, 
concerning those things for which there might not be evidence, then those things there, if it is the case that a person has this reluctancy, he is uneasy about doing it, then it is better, it is safer that he keeps away from it. Likewise, from what the scholars they mentioned concerning this part of the hadith, is that when the scholar gives a verdict, this is an additional benefit, that when a scholar gives a verdict, or when you impart knowledge to someone, then you have to take into consideration who that person is. Here the Prophet ﷺ said to a man, sin is what you are uneasy about, what you find a feeling of uneasiness in your soul regarding. But he said that to a man who he knew was a righteous man, a companion. If somebody else comes along that you know is an open sinner and they ask you this type of question, then there is a certain type of answer that you provide them with. You notice this. You sit and you observe and you watch how the scholars who deliver verdicts, how they interact with people that come to them seeking fatwa. One person comes to him <clears throat> and asks him for a verdict on issue A. He poses his question, issue A maybe, and the scholar delivers an answer. And it's quite a detailed answer. Somebody else now comes along, asks the same question, issue A, asks the same question, but the, the answer that the scholar gives, it's different. It's not different in terms of it contradicts his first answer, but the answer that he gives is slightly different in wording. Perhaps it's summarized. Or perhaps the scholar, he'll say, this answer, I don't know the answer to it, ask somebody else. Yani, I don't know the answer that is suitable for you, go ask somebody else. You'll find this, the scholar's doing that. Why? Because <clears throat> not every answer is suitable for every person. Not every judgment that is issued, not every ruling that is issued, is suitable to be delivered to every single person. That is a benefit that we derive from this narration. That the Messenger said to this particular companion, Sin is defined as what? Sin is what you find uneasiness within your soul regarding because this companion was such that if he was to embark upon something that was in fact in reality a sin, he would have felt this uneasiness in himself regarding. And a righteous believer will feel that uneasiness in his soul regarding it. Part number seven, part number seven, is concerning the fact that um, this companion came to the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophet said to him, you've come to me asking about sin, haven't you? You've come to me wanting to know what is the definition of sin. You've come to, you've come to me wanting to know about sin. This therefore indicates that the Prophet ﷺ had prior knowledge. He had prior knowledge of this question that this companion was entertaining in his mind. The companion came to Prophet Muhammad. Prophet Muhammad said, you have come to me in order to inquire about sin. And the companion, he said, yes. So this therefore means that the Prophet ﷺ had prior knowledge about this question that this companion 
uh, had. Either that the companion had spoken about this matter before to the Prophet wasallam, or that it was well, it became known amongst the people, amongst the other companions, that this companion in specific had this question in mind. And the Messenger والسلام, came to know of that. And so when the companion came, the Messenger said, you've come to me asking about sin. You've come to me wanting to know about, about what sin is. How did the Prophet وسلم, know that? Because he had prior knowledge of it, either by the companion having discussed the matter, mentioned the matter to him before, or that it was known amongst the companions that this companion in specific had this question in mind. That is part number seven. Part number eight is a summary, is a summary of the benefits. There are five benefits. Number one, in this hadith, this hadith highlights the great station of good character, of good manners. Number two, that al-bir and al-ithm, righteousness and sin, are comprehensive words. They are collective words. They collect different things, different meanings. Bir collects, it is a term that denotes all things that are righteous, whether external or internal statements or actions. Number three. أن المسلم يقدم في أمور دينه على فعل ما هو واضح الحل دون ما هو مشتبه Number three, what we learn from this hadith is that the Muslim, he should embark upon those things that are related to his religion. Those things that are clear. A Muslim should do those things whose permissibility is clear. It's clear that it is halal. Rather than engaging in those things, or as opposed to engaging in those things that are mushtabih, dubious, in those things that are doubtful. Because once you develop a personality, once you develop a character, once you develop a habit of engaging in those things that are dubious, that are doubtful, then this is going to affect your deen. If you end up developing a habit, of doing those things that there is a question mark over. Should I engage in this business transaction? I don't know. Should I or should I not? Is it halal or is it haram? I'm not too sure. No problem. As it's the case that I don't know for definite that it's haram, I'll do it. Is it the case that I should get this particular job? Is it halal? Is it haram? Should I do it? Should I not? You know what? No problem. I'll do it. Because I don't know for definite if it's haram. If you continue like this, then this is going to make you fall into those things that are absolutely and clearly haram as we have learned before in the previous hadith in al-halal bayin ila akhir al-hadith so therefore the muslim he should only do those things that are clearly halal and keep away from those things that are doubtful number 4 anna al-mu'min alladhi yakhafu allah la yaf'al ma la yatma'in ma la yatma'inu ilayhi ilayhi qalbuhu walaw uftiya bihi ما لم يكن أمرا واضحا في شرعي كالرخص. So point number four is that the believer that fears Allah, he should not do those things that his heart isn't at ease with. 
even if he is receiving verdicts from other people, qualified or unqualified, verdicts that are coming from people who deliver verdicts based upon knowledge, or those people who just deliver verdicts based upon their whims and their desires. Regardless, if it is the case that the heart isn't at ease with it, then the Muslim who fears Allah should not, he should not embark upon it. Number five, what we learn from this hadith is حرص الصحابة رضي الله تعالى عنهم على معرفة الحلال والحرام والبر والإثم So from this hadith, we learn about the companions as well. From this hadith, we learn something very, very significant about the companions and a trait of the companions. What is it that we learn? We learn that the companions were very keen about knowing the halal, knowing the haram, knowing what is sin, knowing what is, what is righteousness. They weren't people that, if I hear what is halal, if I hear what is haram, then no problem. They weren't like that. They weren't complacent. They didn't have a lax attitude concerning halal and haram, but they were very keen about knowing what is halal. They were very keen about knowing what is haram. This is something that we learn from this particular hadith. Tamam. Any of these points need repeating? Tamam. Let's move on to hadith Athamin wal Ishirun, hadith number 28. Anybody memorized it? Anybody want to read it from memory? No. Tamam. عن ابي نجيح العرباد بن ساريه رضي الله تعالى عنه قال وعذنا رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم موعظه بليغه وجلت منها القلوب وظرفت منها العيون العرباد بن ساريه رضي الله تعالى عنه he said that the messenger of Allah عليه الصلاه والسلام he admonished us with a eloquent admonishment by way of which the hearts became filled with fear and the eyes shed tears. فَقُلْنَا يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ كَأَنَّهَا مَوْعِذَةُ مُوَدِّعٍ فَأَوْصِنَا So we, the companions, we said, O Messenger of Allah, it is as though this is a, an admonishment a sermon, an admonishment of someone bidding us farewell. It is as though this is a farewell sermon. Therefore, give us some advice. The Messenger said, I advise you with the taqwa, the fear of Allah, piety before Allah, I advise you with piety of Allah, the mighty, the majestic. And to hear and to obey. I advise you to hear and to obey, meaning to your leaders. Even if a slave gains authority over you, even if a slave has authority over you. Because indeed the one who lives long among you, he will see a great amount of differing. 
فعليكم بسنتي وسنه الخلفاء الراشدين المهديين therefore upon you is to stick to my sunnah my way and the way of the rightly guided caliphs after me عبدوا عليها بالنواجذ stick on to it hold on to it hold on to my sunnah and the sunnah of the rightly guided successors after me hold on to that sunnah onto that way with your maulati wa iyakum wa muhdathatil umur be aware of the newly invented matters fa inna kulla bid'atin dalalah for indeed every bid'ah is a dalalah every innovation is a misguidance the hadith having been reported by imam abi daud and imam tirmidhi this great and tremendous hadith Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Abad, his explanation to it is divided into eight parts. The final part being a summary of the benefits. So perhaps in this session we'll, com we'll complete part number, uh, part number one, two, and three. Part number one is concerning the statement of Al-Irbad ibn Sariyah when he said, the Messenger of Allah والسلام, he admonished us. He delivered a sermon. He admonished us with a with an eloquent admonishment by way of which the hearts became filled with fear and the eyes they shed tears. So concerning this we find from Irbad ibn Sariyah in this introduction that Irbad ibn Sariyah gave. Irbad ibn Sariyah, he mentioned the hadith, but he gave an, introdu in, an introdu introduction to it. In this introduction, he <coughs> describes, he describes the sermon of the Prophet. He describes this admonishment of the Prophet. He describes it with three characteristics. Number one, he describes this mawidah as being baligha as being eloquent number two that this sermon this admonishment it caused fear to be filled within the hearts and number three this sermon this admonishment caused the eyes to shed tears as far as the term Mawidah is concerned. Mawidah, admonishment. And that is defined as that speech that has targheeb and targheeb in it. That speech that has targheeb and targheeb in it. Targheeb, yani to arouse interest, to in excite and uh, excite the feelings to excite the feelings and to arouse interest as far as islam is concerned targheeb it means to arouse interest concerning the afterlife and how to get to a good place in the afterlife targheeb as far as the word in the islamic context is concerned it, it denotes uh, arousing interest and Yani, uh, causing the person to become excited towards the afterlife, having a good place in the afterlife. 
A mawidah, an admonishment, is a statement or a speech that has within it targhib, this arousal of interest, and likewise it has within it tarheeb. It has within it tarheeb, causing others to become frightened, scared, afraid, causing others to become afraid. Tarheeb, it means causing others to become afraid. In the Islamic context, it means causing others to become afraid about the hereafter, the afterlife. Causing others to become afraid about angering Allah Jalla wa'az, the punishment of Allah. This is what Targheeb and Targheeb mean. Targheeb, encouraging one word that we could use. It might not be very precise, but encourage, encouraging, meaning encouraging people towards the afterlife. Targheeb, dreading, causing people to become fearful about the punishment of Allah. So, Al-Maw'idah has Targheeb and Targheeb. Al-Maw'idah, an admonishment, has Targheeb and it has Targheeb. وَيُؤَثِّرْ عَلَى النُّفُوسِ وَيَبْلُغُ الْقُلُوبِ it has an effect upon the souls and it reaches the hearts and thus the souls and the hearts they become filled with fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now this particular mawidah of the messenger of Allah alayhi salatu wasalam al-irbad ibn sariyah he described it as being baligha as being eloquent balagha eloquence Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali rahimahullah ta'ala, he said about it, Al-Balagha fil maw'idah mustahsana. Al-Balagha, eloquence, in an, in an admonishment is something that is desirable. If an admonishment, if a reminder is delivered, then for that admonishment to be characterized with balagha, with eloquence, is something that is desirable. What is the definition of, of Balagha? Ibn Rajab, he gives a definition to it, a, a heavy, a, how can you say, a, a, a mouthful of a definition. It's very, it's, يعني, it is very definitive. We'll give it and then we'll explain it. He said, Al-Balagha, he التوصل إلى إفهام المعاني المقصودة وإيصالها إلى قلوب السامعين بأحسن سورة من الألفاظ الدالة عليها وأفصحها وأحلاها لأسماع وأوقعها في القلوب. He said الموع البلاغة eloquence that is the attainment of causing other people to understand the meanings of whatever you're saying. To cause other people to understand the intent that you had behind a certain statement. You say something, and people they may misunderstand it, misunderstand what you meant. So eloquency is to cause other people to understand what you meant, transmitting that meaning to the hearts of those that are listening. How? Transmitting the meanings that you intend to the hearts of those that are listening by selecting the best words 
those words that are the most indicative of the meaning that you are wanting to imply. The most eloquent of those words. Those words that are the most sweet to hear. Those words that penetrate the heart the most. In layman's terms, eloquency is saying what you mean to say using the best and the most effective words. Fasa, or rather, balagha is saying what you mean to say, selecting the best and the most effective words. The Messenger of Allah, والسلام, in this sermon that he delivered, in this sermon that caused the companions to perhaps feel and think that maybe the Messenger والسلام, is going to die soon. This is, this is his last sermon. This is one of the last times that we're going to see the Messenger of Allah The content of that sermon was such that it made the companions become apprehensive that maybe this is a farewell sermon. That particular sermon that the Messenger delivered had balagha in there. It had this eloquence in there. It had words that were effective. Words that were the most penetrative as far as penetrating the hearts and affecting the listeners was concerned. And it caused them it caused the listeners <clears throat> for their hearts to become filled with fear and for their eyes to shed tears. And this is something that Allah has described the believers with. The believing man, the believing woman whose iman is healthy is one who when he hears the statements of Allah, his heart it trembles and his eyes and her eyes shed tears. Allah Jalla wa Ala, he has said in his book, إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ الَّذِينَ إِذَا ذُكِرَ اللَّهِ وَجِلَتْ قُلُوبُهُمْ Indeed, the believers are those who when Allah is mentioned, their hearts, they become filled with fear. وَإِذَا تُلِيَتْ عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتُهُ زَادَتْهُمْ إِيمَانًا وَعَلَى رَبِّهِمْ يَتَوَكَّلُونَ And when his ayat are recited to him, when his ayat are recited, then it increases them in faith and upon their lords, upon their Lord they place their trust. Likewise, Allah has said, وَإِذَا سَمِعُوا مَا أُنزِلَ إِلَى الرَّسُولِ تَرَى أَعْيُنُهُمْ تَفِيضُ مِنَ الدَّمْعِ When they, meaning the believers, hear what, was, what is revealed to the messenger, meaning when they hear the Qur'an, then you see Then you see that their eyes become filled with tears. That is the nature of the believer, male or female. That when he hears the ayat of Allah, those ayat that speak about the greatness of Allah, those ayat, those verses that speak about the afterlife, about paradise, about hellfire, then his heart becomes filled with awe, with fear with a tremendous feeling and that results in his eyes shedding tears part number two the companions they said to the messenger of Allah oh messenger of Allah it is as though this is a farewell sermon therefore advise us meaning that the companions the companions because they, their priorities of life were set in the right order. People live life and their priorities are all over the place. 
So you have this person, his priority is his career. He neglects his children, he neglects his wife, he neglects his, his neighbors, he neglects his, his relatives, he neglects, he neglects other people. And he neglects something that is far more important than those things. He neglects the right of his Lord. His priorities are messed up. You find another person, his priority is nothing other than his physical body. So the only thing that's of concern to him is food and drink and eating the right foods and taking the right supplements and going to the gym and so on and so forth. These things are good, but that is his absolute main priority. As for his Lord who gave him the body in the first place, he doesn't think about him at all. Some people, they have their priorities in the wrong order, but the companions, they were different. The disciples of our Prophet Muhammad, their priorities were in the right order. So when they realize that perhaps this is the last time that we're going to see this great noble man, the best man to walk upon the face of this earth, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, because it's the case that this may be the last time that we see him and we need him as far as knowledge is concerned to know how to live life, to know how to set our priorities, all right? Because this may be the last time that we see him, then we want wasiyah from him we want comprehensive all-inclusive advice from him so that we can then act upon it and that is the reason why the companions because they sense that perhaps this is the last time that we're seeing him they sought from the messenger alayhi salatu wasalam comprehensive advice all-inclusive advice that is summarized thus that they can act upon it and set their priorities in life right part number three Part number three, and this is the final part that we'll cover for today, is when the Messenger alayhi salatu after having been requested from his companions to impart summarized and comprehensive advice, he then said, That's the first piece of advice that he gave. I advise you with the taqwa of Allah. I counsel you with the Taqwa of Allah. I'm going to leave you with this piece of advice and that is what? Taqwa of Allah. Which is translated as fear of Allah. Translated as piety before Allah. But it is much more broader than that. Taqwa of Allah which is translated as fear of Allah. It has been defined as obeying Allah. Upon light from Allah, meaning upon faith. You're a man of faith, you're a woman of faith. And based upon that faith that you have of your creator, you obey him. Hoping in the reward of Allah. Obey Allah upon light from Allah. Hoping in the reward of Allah. That's one part. Second and final part to the definition of taqwa. Is that you abstain, keep away, refrain from sinning against Allah. Upon nur from Allah, upon light from Allah, meaning upon faith. You keep away from sinning against Allah because you're a man of faith, you're a woman of faith. True and correct, authentic faith. Fearing the punishment of Allah. Fearing the punishment of Allah. That is the definition of taqwa. To do what your Lord has told you to do because you're a man of faith, <coughs> because you're a man of faith and you hope in the reward in the afterlife, and you keep away from sinning against your Lord because you're a man of faith, you're a woman of faith. 
You have faith that your Lord will save you from the fire of hell if you keep away from disobeying him. That is what taqwa is. Loosely translated as fearing Allah. But as we can see, it's much more broad. <coughs> this taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the word taqwa literally means to place a shield. The word taqwa in the Arabic language literally means to place a shield between you and between the thing that you fear, that you're scared of. Taqwa, literally, in the Arabic language, if we take it away from the Islamic context, just what does the word taqwa mean in the Arabic language? If I open up a dictionary, an Arabic dictionary, what would taqwa mean literally in the ling linguistic sense? It means to place a shield between you and the thing that you are scared of. How does that fit now into the Islamic sense of the word? How does it fit into the Islamic sense of the word? In the Islamic sense of the word, taqwa, placing a shield between yourself and the thing that you fear, what's the thing that you fear? The punishment of Allah. Whether you like it or not, there is a punishment that is there, ready and prepared for a certain group of people in the afterlife. As soon as you die, there is a punishment waiting a group of people who wish to rebel against their Lord in this life. They think life is theirs, they own life. No, you don't own life. Life is your creator. He's granted it to you as a favor. Pay gratitude to him for that favor by living life as and how he has designed for you to live it. If the person is rebellious against his creator in this life, then there is a punishment waiting for him in the afterlife. Taqwa is to place a shield between yourself and that punishment how do you place a shield between yourself and that punishment by doing what your lord has told you to do and by keeping away from what your what your lord has told you to keep away from simple do those two things do what your lord has said don't do what your lord has told you not to do and now you have a nice strong fortified shield between you and the punishment in the grave between you and the punishment on the day of resurrection. Between you and the bridge that passes over the hellfire into paradise. Between you and hellfire itself. That is taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you notice the messenger of Allah alayhi salatu wasalam, He said, Usikum bi taqwa Allah azza wa jal. He said that in the actual hadith. He said, I advise you with the taqwa of Allah. Loosely translated, the fear of Allah, Azza wa Jal, the mighty, the majestic. What's so significant about that? The messenger, he says, I advise you with the fear of Allah. And then he, he, he uh, described Allah as being Azza wa Jal, the mighty and majestic. Meaning that from the methods of getting this taqwa, from the ways of being a man of taqwa, a woman of taqwa, is increasing your awareness of Allah. Bring to mind that Allah is Aziz. Allah is mighty. He is great. He is supreme. 
He is majestic. That all honor, it is Allah's. All glory, it is Allah's. All might, it is in the power of Allah. It is in the control of Allah. Allah is the greatest. When a person bears in mind, he thinks about consciously that he has a great Lord, a mighty Lord, that no sound, no sound exists within the whole of creation except that Allah hears it. Not just, not just no sound exists within this room. There are so many different sounds. Some of them I can hear and some of them I can't hear. Allah Jalla wa'ala, He hears every single sound in this room. The pens that are scraping against the paper, the pages that are turning, the keys that are clanging, people that are breathing, all of those sounds, Allah is hearing them. But not only that, every single sound within this city, every single sound within England, within Great Britain, every single sound within this earth, this earth, every single sound within the seven earths and the seven heavens every single sound that is happening Allahu Jalla wa'ala he hears it no sound escapes his hearing and every single thing that is moving whether it's here or anywhere within this universe Allah is seeing it now if you just think about that your mind your heart your soul it becomes overwhelmed with awe of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and when you have that awe of Allah Jalla wa'az, then it produces this thing called taqwa, this fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this barrier, this shield that protects you from the punishment of Allah in the afterlife. Insha'Allah ta'ala, as the food has arrived, and as we hear many times, إِذَا حَذَرَ الطَّعَامِ بَطَلَ الْكَلَامِ If the food comes, then kalam, speaking, khalas, it's gone now. Everybody's hungry, they want to eat. So we'll conclude at this point. And inshallah ta'ala, we'll conclude next week. Uh, we'll continue next week. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. Wa sallallahu ma'ala nabiyyina Muhammad. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.